Hi everyone and welcome to the Fintech Germany Award Jewelry Podcast enabled by Financial Times. I am Alexandra, your host today, and we will provide you with insights on the award, our jewelry members and latest trends in the industry. I'm sitting in Frankfurt today with Nectarios Liolios. Nectarius, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Alexandra. And thank you for pronouncing my name well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so um, where do you come from? Just when we started with the name now, what's your background? So it's it's confusing to people because to the outside world, I have a British accent. To the Brits, I have a German accent. I grew up in Germany. I was born and raised in Germany. And I'm a son of Greek immigrants. Gastarbeiter. Mm -hmm. But I was 29 when I moved to London. So I've spent most of my time still in Germany and then I've been in London for 27 years. Okay. And I know that you are not only a jury member, but also very well known for your appearances on the stage as moderator. So um, Michael likes to call you a fintech guru or in German an Urgestein. So could you maybe help our listeners what that means and um, what's your background on being a fintech urgestein i think when people use this word they just want to say in a very polite way that you're old ah, no but <laughs> um, you you don't look old i can say just, um the, the reason so so i i use the word fintech veteran in my linkedin profile just because i've been doing fintech ecosystem work before fintech was a word so uh, i spent Since when um so i spent most of my time most of my career in financial services but in 2010 i moved into an innovation team at swift uh, the the network the messaging network of the banking world uh, and the team was called innotribe so in 2011 we created the first global fintech competition startup competition called innotribe mm -hmm. um, so my fintech life started 12 years ago Uh, but at that point, that wasn't a word. We used to call the startups financial services startups. And then in 2013, people started using the word for the first time. I know, I was in the industry as well and it was the first time and everyone thought, oh wow, this is completely new, but some companies were not that new, right? <laughs> so when, when, I, I, when I talk publicly about this, I, I tell people that... So I, at the end of 2013, I started the first startup accelerator for fintech companies called Startup Bootcamp Fintech. It was a mm -hmm. corporate innovation-driven startup accelerator where on the one side we had banks who were looking for innovation and on the other side we had startups that were trying to get into the industry, so mainly B2B businesses. Mm -hmm. um, but the first person I hired for Startup Bootcamp Fintech, and, and I remember the interview, it was December 2013, he thought fintech means technology from Finland. So it was still. <laughs> oh wow! I did not. I I have not heard of that one. That's, That's nice <laughs> because it's it was new, right? Uh, okay, when we started, we did start a startup with in Shortech in 2015, and at that point we were arguing because nobody had used the word before. If we spell in Shortech with an e in the middle or not, all these things. When you mm -hmm. when you're there from the beginning, you you see all this. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so so yeah, my life has been running the startup fintech InnoTrap startup competition for for two and a half years with Swift. Uh, it was a global event with showcases in. London, Singapore, and New York. The best of the bunch, we flew to uh, Cybos, the big financial services conference that Swift mm -hmm. ran. So at that time, we had, I don't know, we had TransferWise after they raised a seed round. We had Revolut when they raised Series A. So very early stage fintech companies that are now household names. And I left at a time where accelerators started becoming a thing because we wanted to work with these companies much more closely and started bootcamp over five years. At some point was the largest accelerator program for financial services in the world with programs mm -hmm. in 12 
12 countries around the world from the West Coast and the US all the way through to Australia. But the business behind it was a corporate innovation business called Rainmaking. So we would work with financial institutions, try to understand where they are in their innovation journey and see if if the accelerator is the right tool at an early stage of their mm-hmm. their journey or if we needed to do something more meaningful. Um, which means that in my 12, nearly 13 years in this world, I've seen thousands of pitches and decks and stories, and that's why people call me uh, uh, Urgestein. Okay, okay, but that that makes <laughs> sense in in that respect. Um, but what is driving you as a person in that area? Or to rephrase it, did you always want to go in that area, or what is the story? How you? Oh, I've been ended up there. I've been very much a very opportunistic person. I wanted to be a choreographer when I was a teenager. Choreographer for dancing? dancing? Yes. So nothing to do with financial services, innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, none of this. I fell into all of it. Okay. I did my degree in something How? else. It's just coincidence. <laughs> you see an opportunity and when your your attitude to life is, this looks fun, what's the worst that can happen? You jump into things and you see where it takes you. Uh, and innovation was very much the same. I wasn't planning. I was very corporate. I had a suit and a tie and no beard and all that. And um, I don't know what once. <laughs> no, I have not seen you in a suit and a tie, and I cannot I picture can, that in my I head. I can show now. you a photo. <laughs> yeah. um, so no, it was it was sheer coincidence. But I think when I started my innovation life, this was where, for the first time in my life, I felt agency and I felt I'm doing something meaningful. And it was exciting. It was being at the forefront of something. Uh, all that said, at the end of 2018, I walked away from all of it because I had enough from talking to banks and financial institutions because I, I started getting really disillusioned because I didn't mm-hmm. believe that they would do the difficult stuff. Banks would always do the easy things that looks good on an annual report, but some of the fundamental innovation mm-hmm. work goes deeper than running a garage or having a room full of beanbags and post-its. And therefore mm-hmm. I just thought, I, I can't, I'm wasting my time here. So I took a break. I took a break and I, I when I came back, I did two things. Uh, one of them was starting something on a subject that I care deeply about, which is mental health and entrepreneurship. Because mm-hmm. in those years, I saw a lot of businesses, especially first-time founders, really struggle with their mental health. And mm-hmm. nobody, there was no platform to talk about this. Nobody gave them permission to say that it's really difficult. Especially in Germany. You know, it's, it's, it's global. Okay, I, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so I, I can see why you say it about Germany, but trust me, it's, it's everywhere. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that happened was I, I started something with a friend of mine who ran a software house in Bratislava. Um, that became the first LGBT bank in the world because we both believed in when you're part of a community that has specific needs and the financial services system doesn't cater for them because it's built for the mainstream, maybe you need mm-hmm. to build something more niche, more focused. So we built, um, a, 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 we started something that became Daylight, the first LGBT bank in the world in the US um, that launched in November 2020 and shut down two months ago for all sorts of reasons. Um, but now I'm, I'm a fintech founder again. So I'm doing all this other stuff. But my main thing is I'm founder of a company called, business, uh, called Radish, which is um, a lending as a service business for underserved communities. Okay. And the name Radish, why is that? What's the story? <laughs> There is no story. Okay. We, we keep talking about the fact <laughs> that we need to build a... Look, when we built Daylight, we went to an agency who did a branding exercise and they gave us 30 names and we picked Daylight for the LGBT bank because it was great. It fit and made sense. Very positive Yeah, and well. Radish mm-hmm. was... 
one of the rejects, one of the names they didn't pick, and I just liked it because it's a real. It's one. It's not. You know, a lot of fintech companies have got all these made-up names that end mm-hmm. in ly and all that, and I didn't want that. So I thought, let's just call it for the fun of it, radish, because you visualize something. It's a vegetable. Yeah, I know. Uh, and yeah. I, and my first thought was, is there a special <laughs> connection between you and radish? So uh, what what? <laughs> the, the, so when we try to construct afterwards a story, radishes grow very fast. Yeah, that's one. Okay, that's... Another one is because what we're doing is actually finding good credit where the banks don't look. So our tagline is unearthing good credit. Yeah, and the radish is below the yeah, uh, below yeah, the so surface. Just pull them out and say, look, it's yeah, good. yeah, that's uh, that's a nice story. <laughs> no, but I like the name because it's it's really something that immediately makes you think about what is behind it. Yeah. So yeah, it's good to know that now. <laughs> but it's also <laughs> difficult to find the company then because you don't know if you are just Googling Radish, you don't find the company, of course, yeah. but you need to Google Radish and company Credit. and your name. Yeah. And then, yeah. it's, uh, then well, it's a picture. A long time ago, people would Google Apple and would get fruit and now they get something else. <laughs> Super. So bridging mental health and fintech, could you go into details on that one, why that is one of your key priority topics now? So is there maybe one particular story that was some kind of opening moment for you or... It's, Anything. We, th- this can lead to a whole other podcast. Okay. Um, but <laughs> we, we do that then in another session. <laughs> no, no, but I will, I will talk a little bit about mm-hmm. it. So when we started the Accelerator, we would work with 10 companies that we picked for three months, intense uh, pressure. Uh, and we thought in 2014 that this was cool. This was the right thing to do for the businesses to succeed. Because at that point, this was the beginning of this glorification of the Silicon Valley mindset and the hustle culture and all that. Mm-hmm. And I would see people in front of me falter. I would see people struggle. I would see people not sleep for days because they were under so much pressure. And at that point, I didn't realize that I was part of the problem. But when you run these accelerators consistently Mm -hmm. over multiple years and you see that there's a pattern Mm -hmm. that people actually really struggle, you go, why is that? Mm -hmm. Um, I I grew up in a home with a depressive mother Mm -hmm. who was clinically depressed. So I had a bit of an awareness about what mental health could mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you ask about a a key point that at some point, one of in in my very first program in 2014, one of the guys in the cohort came up to me one day and asked me, and amusingly, the program was in London. This was a German guy. So he asked me, what is your policy about drug drug use on premises? And I was like, okay, what? <laughs> I was, Why I was do you ask it? not expecting that sort of question okay, or that yeah, sort of thing. Sure. But it turns out that he'd observed people regularly taking drugs, all sorts of substances mm-hmm. uh, in the evenings. Uh, so sleeping pills or some things to keep you up. It was usually to keep people up. And that's mm-hmm. where you start wondering why that is. Because these were individuals that were actually performing and they were always there then you start connecting the dots Mm -hmm. and then you start digging and you realize that there's not a lot of research out there but there is research that shows that as an entrepreneur you're twice more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression you're three times more likely to engage in substance abuse you're three times more likely to have suicidal ideation and if you compare this to the general population the numbers are huge and is that across all industries or yeah, this is not industry specific okay this is also interestingly enough it's also not cultural it's okay. it's the specifically the tech startup environment that we all are part of the, the, this fueled hyping venture capital driven buzz that's been now happening for the last 10 years so 
Is that, but then is that always also the case? Maybe you know it from some studies. Is that also the case where you have founders that don't need venture capital and maybe have less stress? So maybe there's a connection as well, because I would think myself, okay, if the, if people are doing something with an idea they believe in, they are more likely to be happy than in a corporate culture. Maybe that would be my thought. So, um, This is where we can go deep. Um, <laughs> okay. No, no, but you, you're onto the right path here. So the, the research shows that you need to have certain intrinsic motivations to become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And the meaning of what you're building and mm -hmm. the agency you have over taking your own decisions and the risk capital that comes with you makes you a good entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is that you actually are capable of persuading yourself that your health is less important because you've got this cosmic goal that you need to achieve. Okay. And that makes things difficult. And there's an interesting, there's actually a German researcher, Dr. Ute Stefan uh, from King's College in London, who's doing some work on this recently. And we had, because I, uh, we have a mental health podcast uh, mm -hmm. and we had her as a guest and she was talking about this, practically this disconnect where you can do both. You can be happy and stressed at the same time. Happy because it's meaningful, but stressed because it's just a startup life that you've chosen. So venture capital adds to this, but they're not necessarily the reason, but they're definitely part of the problem. Because I mean, I'm also a listener of uh, some business podcasts and also I'm very interested in the mental health and physical health topics. So a lot of, of these other podcasts bring out the story and the connection more and more that you can only be a very good entrepreneur if you do look after your health. Physical absolutely, and absolutely. So you would yeah. also believe. I totally that. agree in this. Mm -hmm. uh, with this, and, and the reason I talk about venture capital and investors is when we started this in the, the end of 2019, uh, we we asked around because my co-founder and I we we come from this world. We know a lot of VCs, and it was shocking to see how little VCs cared about the the mental health of the founders. They would have an awareness that physical health matters, but mm -hmm. there was also this mindset. It's a portfolio game which one of the companies fails because the founder fails because they had a burnout. Mm -hmm. It's just part of the game. That's not the company that will make me rich. So your mission, if I would bring it down to maybe one sentence from what I have understood now is that you bring humanity into the space of fintechs or VCs. I, I love, I love the, the way you phrase it. We talk about normalizing the conversation about mental health, okay. destigmatizing it mm -hmm. and bringing the stories to the surface and getting the people who are part of the problem to think about their role in this. I like that very much. So um, I hope you keep up the good work that you're doing. Thank you. But now we have to switch the topic a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> only a little bit. As, um, as a Drury podcast, of course, we want to get involved into some some insights from the jury work and um I know you are more of a moderator for the FinTech Germany Award, but you are also rating some of the companies or maybe all. I don't know. We have quite a long list each year. So what is your motivation to be a part of the jury each year and of the award? There's two motivations uh, and maybe to, to your point, um, I focus on the early stage businesses because I get particularly excited by early stage. Mm -hmm. I, if a company has already had 
revenues and success, I kind of go, yeah, I just don't have the same spark. But I okay. really like the idea of looking at businesses that are new, looking at the teams that come into this. What are, what, what are the people that are doing this? Because I generally get most excited by the people. How do you assess the people from the pitch decks that we get? <laughs> I mean, it's all these shiny CVs in most of the cases, but how do you assess that in your rating? Well, if the, if the purpose of the podcast is to give people an insight on how the jury work works. A little bit, yes. It's uh, we get people to answer a questionnaire and then we also have a deck. Mm -hmm. And I think you can say a lot about how people answer the questionnaire. The pitch decks are, uh, some are very polished, some are a bit more mm -hmm. homemade, some are very basic. Mm -hmm. um, but the pitch decks are things where you can tell that people have put some effort in and sometimes they're externally produced and sometimes they're very glossy. And they all follow a narrative. And sometimes you look for the things that aren't in the pitch deck rather than what is in the pitch deck. Yeah, that's my approach yeah. sometimes as well. Uh, so I Google stuff and uh, I look on the websites or if there is an app that you can already test and yeah. get a user yeah. to. So yeah, that's... Uh, But on the, on the questionnaire, I think for me, you can see how people sometimes really make an effort to answer the question specifically. Mm -hmm. You can see, you get a sense of this was given to an intern who mm -hmm. just put in some generic blurb. Or some buzzwords from ChatGPT. Yeah, or something. I actually didn't even go that far, but <laughs> yeah, this is where I'm old and my brain doesn't instantly go to all this. Um, <laughs> but no, the interesting thing for me this year, we had questions around culture. We had questions around culture and scale. Yeah, true. And I, as a default, removed at least one mark for every company that didn't bother answering that question. It was an optional question, But make an effort. And it was interesting that some companies that were very early stage really had purposeful things to say about how the culture of the company looks that they want to build, even though the company isn't built yet. And mm -hmm. for me, these things feed into my assessment of the companies. So you would also agree culture eats strategy for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's very simple. There's So I live in London. I've been around for a while. There's a whole, let's just say there's a handful of very successful fintech businesses in the UK. And you just need to Google them. And one of them has been in the news repeatedly about the terrible culture that they have, mm -hmm. and they're very successful. And there's another one that's been very successful with the highest staff retention in fintech, more or less. Mm -hmm. And I think it's telling, you can build both. But the mm -hmm. one is you do this with happy people, and the other one is you do this with high turnover of people who just come for a bit, use this as a career step, maybe burn out, maybe get unhappy and then leave. I prefer the other one. Me too, because when when I saw that you deeply care about the people, they care about the company, they care about the customers. So if you care about the people that you have in the company, the rest is all working out fine in most of the cases, not so, in all. But uh, for, for me, it's important. I, th I think This is this is why I put such a big effort in my judging of the companies and I give the feedback also to startups that I see outside of this world. We, we've both been in the corporate world. We both know that people become managers in corporate, not because they are the best people managers, but because they've been doing one thing well. They've been good at selling or they've been good at building tech or whatever it is. And then they get managerial training and that doesn't necessarily make them good managers. Mm -hmm. So the culture for me in this case, is flawed because nobody actually looks at the people who are the best leaders of this team. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in startup world, especially with early stage businesses, it's not similar. There's a bunch of people coming together because they have a great idea. Maybe one of them is tech, one of them knows how to sell. And suddenly they're surrounded by the people that they've hired. And then they start thinking about, okay, what are we going to do about our culture now? 
Mm-hmm. But by that point, they already have established a culture and it might not be the best. That's why I quite like talking about it now. And I advise a bunch of startups myself. And I always go on about, like, there's this wonderful company in Greece that I'm advising. And they've been growing, they've been doing really well. And at some point, you had to go, guys, another man, you're now nine guys. Seriously, you couldn't find one woman in the market. <laughs> and you go, it's not about diversity alone. It's about as you grow and you want to attract the best talent, the best person for a particular job might be somebody who doesn't see themselves reflected in the company and they wouldn't come to you because they don't feel they fit. So you need to think a little bit more long-term about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I agree with you on that. Um, so if anyone is listening today about uh, seeking advice for culture, you may address to Nectarios. Just do your homework. Yeah, right. <laughs> So my second motivation to do this is I started my fintech life in, in, in the UK. And when we launched, when we actually had our first demo day, which was November 2014, two days later, I was attending a fintech event in, in Frankfurt. And it was shocking how far behind Germany felt in 2014. London was already a thriving ecosystem and it was practically the center for European fintech. And I thought with the industry that I grew up in, in Germany, because my, my kind of, I, I worked for Deutsche Börse for, for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I was surprised that there was not much happening in Germany. It was quite distributed because there was no natural center with Berlin being the startup heaven, but uh, Frankfurt being the financial industry hub. Mm-hmm. So I was really keen to get something, get this German connection as well. And then I met Michael, who became a mentor in my accelerator. This is how we know each other. Ah. Um, and when I saw what he was doing to build this bridge between UK and, mm-hmm. U, U, and German fintech, I thought when he started this, I thought, Dan, I have to be part of this because I generally care about what comes out of the German ecosystem. Okay, so that is a perfect bridge to the next question I have, which I also ask every one of our guests. So, for example, who would you never have met if it wasn't for the awards? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> it's it's a funny one. I, I don't really have an answer for this. Okay. I, I think that I can flip this. And I think for me, it's funny to come like last year when we hosted the event in November in Berlin or December even. It was quite late in mm-hmm. the year. And I had people in the audience come to me and said, do you remember I was part of Startup Bootcamp in 2015? So for me, what happens is the other way around, that people that I saw when they were very early in their journey, I now meet again at the event because they've either grown their business or Mm -hmm. they've started a new business or they've gone into corporate. For me, it's very much a community event Mm -hmm. and I I enjoy this very much. Um, I think, yeah, yeah. I think it's probably the other way around for me, but maybe I'm I'm different here because because of just my. But we would maybe not have met. We would have not met. Alex. But I'm so happy that we <laughs> will share the stage this year. It's true. It's going to be a double act. Yeah, of course. I'm happy. We're already practicing our dance moves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but only if you're wearing a suit and a tie. There, no, no, we 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 um will not try that. With regards to the fintechs this year on the list, what are the trends that you see most relevant and which topics should startups solve in your view? Um, I find trends is a trigger word for me. 
Okay, for another podcast. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this here. Um, it fascinates me why people are so interested in trends. Because ultimately, trends come and go. Mm -hmm. And you have no idea what this means for how this is going to translate into a real business or into a real user experience a few years down the line. Three years ago, everybody was talking about the metaverse. Nobody's talking about it now. Who knows what happened to it? Maybe it will resurface. So trends are interesting from an observation perspective, but mm -hmm. this is where it goes back to the people. I think the reason I talk a lot about the people building these businesses is because they will pivot and pivot and pivot until they find the best solution for the problem or the best way to solve the problem that they're trying to solve for their clients. I think there are some things that are surprising that they're still around. Maybe that's the, the uh, flipping the question is like, I'm surprised that there's still investment solutions when you can't kind of go seriously, isn't it saturated? It's like five years ago, you go another wallet. Uh, so there's a bit of that that was surprised me that we had a few submissions that were still kind of um, mm -hmm. wealth management light. Mm -hmm. And you go, I'm not really sure this is really relevant, but there seem to be quite a few people working on this. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is something that's more of a DAH problem that it might be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody's curious to see how all the generative AI, large language models, chat GPT, whatever word you want to use, mm -hmm. how this will translate into real value for somebody in the future. Um, I get personally more excited by B2B solutions just because I know how difficult it is to solve business problems. But at the same time, I do like stuff that solves SME problems. Mm -hmm. I think on the consumer experience, we're sort of at a point where the, band, the, the banks have caught up to some extent. So I think, in, and I'm talking more for the UK, for instance, if you look at the app of a bank, it's, it's actually solid. So you don't have this, what you had 10 years ago, where there was this huge gap between what a startup was building mm -hmm. and the lack of the banks. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a mixed picture. I think in terms of trends, I have a particular passion for people who are not served by the system as it exists. That's why I built my own business. That's why we built Radish. Mm -hmm. So anything that comes into and has an element of either hyper-personalization for a specific profile, like, I don't know, there's an investment, investment solutions for women. There's a company in, in Hamburg that builds something for the elderly. So people mm -hmm. who are on the fringes of the system and the system is built for the mainstream, therefore they just don't exist mm -hmm. for them. It's not that they're bad credit or bad customers. They just don't feature. That is interesting. And you see more and more of this happening because technology allows this to, to be more visible. That's exciting. Other than that, trends are generally for me quite, I'm shrugging. If it keeps coming up and one of them shows that they actually add real value, great. Mm -hmm. But you are more like an observer and see whether the trends become long lasting. None of us is an expert in everything, right? Mm -hmm. So the only thing you can do is say, oh, this year we have a lot of crypto stuff or this year we have a lot of wealth stuff. But reality is that all the crypto stuff that we saw coming up five, seven, eight years ago, sort of a lot of it has disappeared or has morphed. So mm -hmm. some things are maturing. So, some have yeah. survived. Yeah, yes. some have survived. I mean, I'm also on the jury now for like four years and um, some of the topics are evolving Last year, I think we had the crypto peak. Mm. This year, it's a little less, but it, some of the companies are still there. Trade finance. We have trade finance each year. There's so many more esoteric aspects of the wider industry. 
nobody's really figured out supply chain solutions to the degree that the banks can actually really do something with them. Yeah. Still there. Um, I grew up in, in so the plumbing of the financial services system, clearing, settlement, reconciliation. What's there? Is there any startup building something for that? Not really. There's maybe a few. There was at some point the opportunity to do something with distributed ledgers. Some are trying to position themselves. So we can talk about this a lot, but they're not real trends. They're still unsolved problems. Yeah, true. And we have another category in our podcast. So Hans Mantel from FRED was able to ask a question in the last episode and he did not know that you would be our next guest. So he asked, which innovative business or digital solution has impressed you most recently? It would be too easy to just give you a name, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, it you know, seriously, it does go back for me to I'm more impressed by the people who are building the businesses than what they're building. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I um, there's this founder in in the UK called Nina Mohanty who's building a business that allows migrants to practically build their credit ability, credit worthiness in the way that it they understand. Because when you come from a different culture, mm -hmm. your credit concept is very different mm -hmm. from from what what you know in what what you see in your new world and for me the the tenacity and the way she built this business from nothing is just mind blowing so for me it does go back to the people mm -hmm. and this is why i'm also very curious at at the ceremony for instance to just get some time to talk to the founders get to see them get to actually get a sense of who they are as people um so yeah not a straight answer i'm afraid but it's a good one and the credit topic is really something um, that we should talk about more and we have that problem in Germany as well um, and I have also an anecdote on that. I had a friend um, female uh, banker and she was never working or living in Germany. She was raised and born here but then she moved to, um, to UK, to France and then she came back and she had a a very nice job, very good income, and she wouldn't get um, a car uh, to be financed because um, she did not have a credit history. Mm. And then she said, yeah, but how do I build it? And I said, okay, go to a bank, get a credit card, make use of it a little bit, but don't do um, experiments with too many cards, with uh, with this or that. Um, but in the, in the first moment she wouldn't get a car uh, to be financed and she had a pretty good income so it's people who go to the u.s talk about this a lot i'm i'm on the advisory board of an indian company called easy home finance and what they do is they give mortgages to the people who are at the bottom of the pyramid they're practically the first opportunity to buy a house rather than mm -hmm. live in really terrible conditions and they started this just by wanting to help people generically but they realized that more than 80 percent of the clients are women Because if you're either a divorced woman mm -hmm. or if you are an unmarried woman and you want the mortgage to be in the name of both the man and the woman, the women usually don't have credit score because it all goes through the male part of the setup. Okay, wow, that's and crazy. And it's amazing that something like this exists. And the interesting thing in India is because regulation is also a bit more lax when it comes to the use of data, you can actually solve this just with data, with telephone records, with transaction mm -hmm. data and everything. So for me, these things do matter. So you're absolutely right. And credit is, is a very simple thing. Well, it's, it's one of the main things to allow people to get onto the ladder, uh, get into a system that they're normally excluded from. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely agree with you. And uh, the last category today in our podcast with you, you also can ask a question for the next jury member to be answered. So what is your question to the next guest? I would like to know the next guest to share with us what they've learned from one of their failures in their career. That's a very good one. Maybe I should also get this on the standard questionnaire <laughs> for all the all the upcoming guests. Um, yeah, but this is a very nice one. So unfortunately, we are at the end today of our episode. Are there any last words for our listeners today? I'm super excited. It's a good it's a good shortlist that we have. I'm looking forward to the final decisions uh, that we have ahead of us. I I want all of us, all of our listeners, to join us at the big event. It's going to be fun. It's always fun. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I can plug my podcast, The Future Farm. Make <laughs> yeah. it by The Future Farm. <laughs> of course. So thank you for being a guest today on our podcast. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Thank you for listening today to this episode of the Fintech Germany Award Jewelry Podcast enabled by Financial Times. All further information you can find in the show notes. 